Join me in Matthew uh, chapter 10. I am never, uh, I never cease to be amazed by our music and worship ministry and the, uh, uh, the ministry that uh, Tim and our band uh, just performed. Um, I, I want to ask Bill Dickerson, how many calories do you lose playing that particular, that, yes. Yeah, I guess so. It's going to have to be. It's just marvelous. Um, just marvelous. Uh, and then uh, I, I couldn't help but think that uh, when we were singing, I'm holding on, I am, I thought, you know, uh, Elizabeth Fry, formerly Elizabeth Webb, uh, has got two twins at home, and she's got to be holding on to everything she's got. Isn't that something? They were recently sick, weren't they? Elizabeth, is, your, is, she, is she still here? Okay, all right. Well, my goodness. Um, what, what a great example she's, um, she's setting. If, um, if God wanted to merely inform our minds, he would have sent an educator. If God had wanted to feed the poor, he would have sent a philanthropist. If he wanted to bring peace between the nations, he would have sent a politician. I think all of these things will eventually happen when Christ comes back, but that wasn't the essence of Jesus' ministry. What God wanted to do is that he wanted to save lost people, so he sent a Savior, qualified. And we've got to be very careful that we do not misunderstand Jesus' ministry. There, I'm afraid, a lot who do. There are pulpits and Bible study classes and Sunday school classes that go on for years and decades and never tell sinners what they can do with their sins. Never bring the cross and resurrection, the hope of Jesus Christ, which dominates the biblical message. Um, I know the, the scripture teaches more. There, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot that follows the conversion experience. But um, th this is what Jesus did. I mean, if he, if he came just merely to feed the poor, he didn't, didn't do a good job. He only fed the poor twice that we've got recorded. If he came to merely educate, well, he kind of arranged things to get himself killed off pretty early. See, the reason he died uh, was not simply because he annoyed everyone. Jesus arranged that. Jesus arranged to get himself to the cross, fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, and paid for the sins of the world. And that is why we have a mission. That is why we have Matthew chapter 10. And that's why I want to encourage you to do all that you can. Shake heaven and earth to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, February the 12th with uh, Dr. Vines. Now we've moved our Sunday night service to a Wednesday night, so it's not um, typical for uh, most of our folks to be in an evening worship service on Sunday night. It hasn't been for some time. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it, it's not sinful to meet on Sunday nights, just to, so you, you know that, okay? Uh, but uh, Dr. Jerry Vines, who I think is probably one of the best pulpiteers in American history, will be with us. He uh, is the, uh, was pastored uh, First Baptist Jacksonville for 24 years uh, at its height while he was there, uh, and it, he was at his height when he left. I think they're running about 9,000 uh, on Sunday mornings in downtown Jacksonville, uh, with just simple Bible exposition. And then I, I really want everyone to participate in that day 
Uh, pray, if you're providentially hindered, then pray hard and plead with God. We'll take up a love offering for Dr. Vine Sunday morning, Sunday night. And then March 26th, invite your one. Get somebody on your heart and get somebody in your prayers and get them here that day. Tim Williams will be with us in April. And then we've got our mission trip in June. We had 103 people sign up Sunday uh, for spots. And there were a, a good number that were out that day or were not able to sign up. Uh, we, um, so we run the risk of, of having too many. And we're thinking about what do we do if we have too many? Because uh, we don't want to tell people no, but uh, we, we'll have to think through that. Well, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, it begins with the agents of missions. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And when he called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Well, these are the agents of mission. These are the ones that carry the mission of Christ into the world. And there are a couple of things I want to say about them. One, they have some unities, and two, they have some varieties, if I can put it that way. They are unified first in their call. Jesus called them. Each disciple received a call from Jesus. No one entered this work without a call. Hebrews 5.4, in fact, says, And no man takes this honor to himself. No one should ever get into the ministry without a call from God. Now, it may be dramatic, like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, which may imply a difficult ministry or a stubborn person that God's calling. Or it may be as light as Peter's call when he said, uh, Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Can you imagine what Peter would be like if he had received a Damascus road call? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'd still be listening to him today. He would have been set on fire and been an unbearable fanatic uh, in many ways. But he didn't. He got a call that was according to his ministry and personality, and so did the Apostle Paul, um, is what he would have had. Then they were unified in their power. In verse 1, Jesus distributed these gifts, in verse 1, to all of the apostles. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of diseases, uh, sicknesses, and all kinds of diseases. Later, the Apostle Paul would say that these are marks or signs of an apostle. Now, for something to be a sign, what, what must uh, uh, this, um, what quality must this have if it's a sign? Let me ask you something. Um, is breathing a sign of being a human being? No, because animals breathe. Okay. Uh, thumbs would be a sign of being a human being. Um, you know, animals don't have thumbs. Is that correct? Well, I don't quite know what to do with that, but I still think you're wrong. But anyway, <laughs> there are differences between... Would you agree with me there are differences between humans and other living things? Okay, at least there's some signs about being a human as I move quickly on. For something to be a sign of an apostle, it has to be unique to the apostles. And so Paul talks about healing and miracles and wonders as signs of the apostles. I don't believe that those supernatural gifts were distributed to the entire body, or else they couldn't have been signs of being an apostle. 
uh, and he uses them that way. Surprisingly, Judas Iscariot apparently used these gifts too, and he was the son of perdition. And maybe that's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, where he says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and perform many miracles and prophesy in your name? Judas may be one of them. So there are some unities here. There are some varieties, too, in verses 2 through 4. There's a variety of occupations. Before Jesus called them, these apostles labored in various occupations. They had different perspectives then, systems, routines, and habits. And I think it's very wise to make the point that God can use anyone from a plumber to a president and sometimes even a preacher. Then there's a variety of passions. These men had a variety of passions. Peter aspired to loyalty. Judas Iscariot, I believe, aspired to revolution. I think that's why he betrayed Jesus. He wanted to force his hand and have him bring the kingdom right then, I suspect. That's a little speculation. But then he also had a penchant for money. He had sticky fingers. He used to pilfer the offering amongst the disciples. Matthew aspired to money as a tax collector and Rome. He was okay with Rome. But Simon the Zealot aspired to kill Jews who cooperated with Rome. And he wanted independence. What was it like then to have Matthew and Simon together in the same apostolic band? Well, it's kind of like having a church, isn't it? These kind of things happen. And Jesus would address those kinds of issues at times. So those are the agents of mission. Then there are the acts of missions. Verses 5 through 15. First, there's some strategic acts. And verses 5 and 6 have caused liberal commentators apoplexy. Uh, it's kind of fun to watch them melt down over this. But verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, it causes them consternation, and a few other things ending in T-I-O-N. They believe that Jesus commanded neglect of the Gentiles here, and then contradicted himself with the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And I, I want to assure you this is much ado about nothing. Christ, uh, but why here did Jesus say don't go, to it, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans? But later he would. Well, why would he do that? Well, say that again. Yeah, they're inexperienced. The timing, that's good. That's good. You're hitting at it. But Jesus uh, intended to reach Israel first in order to gather disciples to reach the Gentiles afterwards. You've got to have a missionary base. I mean, it's simple. Occam's razor is usually a very helpful thing when understanding challenging biblical passages. And Occam's razor is simply, the simplest explanation is probably the right one. So Jesus is simply building a missionary base here, and he's doing it from the Jews so that they can go to the world. They're the most um, steeped in the Old Testament. You don't have to build them up in it quite uh, as much as you would a Gentile, and they can go to the rest of the world. Uh, they've got tremendous memory powers as well. The Jews' ability to memorize things was just tremendous, and so they could memorize Jesus' words and write them down. Uh, when they had time. So Christ avoided a robust Gentile mission at first so he could have one until the end. He avoided the Gentiles here to build a missionary base that would reach the Gentiles and the book of Acts justifies this. It worked. He did the right thing. You've got to have a base. And that's informed my approach to pastoral leadership here. Um, I've been really intense about uh, um, emphasizing the Sunday morning experience and not building too much uh, our other ministries on Sunday night and Wednesday night. Don't want to neglect them. Want them to operate as well as they can. 
But uh, um, Sunday morning, 90% of people will make a decision for Christ and for a church because of your Sunday morning ministries. We can build that, then we can fuel the others. So we don't want to neglect those, but uh, that's, that's, uh, you need a base before you expand. And that's, that's been my reasoning here, and it's informed by this text. Uh, so they're strategic acts. They're verbal acts as well. In verse 7, he says, as you go, preach. Jesus expected verbal declaration of the gospel. He imagined the, the apostles traveling, and uh, as they went, he expected them to announce the good news. And without a spoken gospel, we can offer valuable ministry. And there are some places where um, it's, it's difficult to do that. But without a spoken gospel, we can offer some valuable ministry. But to fulfill Christ's mission, we've got to speak the gospel. Then there's a, there are kingdom acts, verse 8. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. This is what the kingdom will look like. Jesus takes off of Isaiah 35, uh, verses 1 through 5, which say that when the kingdom comes, verse 8 will happen. It doesn't say it quite in those words, but it says uh, lepers will leap and the mute will speak and, and uh, they'll be uh, cleansing and healing. So Jesus gave the apostles power to demonstrate the coming kingdom of God. Uh, since the fall, Satan and the curse have covered the earth. With death, disease, destruction, and demonic activity, Jesus came to destroy these things. And I've told you before about Vance Havner. He said there's no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible. There's no devil in the last two chapters of the Bible. And then he says, thank God for a book that ends with the devil out of business. Along with the curse as well. Then there are financial acts, verses 9 and 10. In the first century throughout the empire, there were traveling speakers who would take up offerings. And some of them were known for deception and uh, rather sneaky and underhanded ways with the offering and with money. And Jesus, knowing that, says this is verses 9 and 10. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. In other words, uh, you are to depend on others to take care of your needs. You've got to trust God for that. And mission action and missions giving still necessitates trust in God. One of the things I hope you'll do is I hope you'll plan your giving instead of just kind of abruptly stumbling on it Sunday morning. Plan your, your missions giving, your giving to Christian Concern, Act 22, those kind of things. Uh, since I've started doing that, I've been able to increase my giving to missions sixfold. And I've got to tell you, uh, threefold, I'm sorry. And I, I'm just really, really impressed. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that because of giving, uh, planning missions giving, we were able to spend as much on uh, the Lottie Moon offering as we were Christmas gifts. Well, that's until there were some unauthorized expenditures on those so uh, but what I spent on Christmas gifts was identical to my Lottie Moon offering anyway financial acts then productive acts verses 11 through 15 you poor thing all right here's what he says now whatever city or town you enter inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out they had um, laws of hospitality and whoever was worthy in the town you stay there and when you go into a house greet it if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it, your approval. Uh, if, but if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Don't even carry their dust with you. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And my goodness, could it get any worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Yes, it can. Jesus here is talking about being productive. In other words, if you find receptive people, dwell with them and preach the gospel. If they're not receptive, move on. And I think that needs to form our uh, missions uh, strategy. So they were to go lodge and witness where they could be productive, and that's how we organize our vision for missions and evangelism. Then there are the marks of missions. The mark of missions uh, comes from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and there, Matthew 28, he said to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I I wish we were a bit more familiar and uh, intense about the doctrine of baptism. Baptism is is a death and a burial and a resurrection. And whenever we're baptized then, we are declaring, I am dying to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so it is something of a crucifixion of self. It's a crucifixion of the world. In other words, I will relate to the sinful values and practices of the world like a corpse would. I'm becoming a corpse. And I'm going to have as much interaction with the sinful values and the sinful notions of the world as someone in a tomb or a grave would. So I die, and Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10.30, I die daily, is what he would do. Um, so that, that, that's the mark of missions. We mark people with baptism to indicate there's been a death. There's been a burial, a death and burial to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, in verses 16 through 39, there's got to be several deaths if we're going to fulfill the mission of Christ. And let me preface this simply by saying, if you're not effective right now in reaching people, something's probably going to have to die. You probably can't go on the way you're going and become effective. Something's going to have to change. Uh, It may be small changes to your prayer life. It may be major changes to how you approach people at the convenience store or grocery store or the neighborhood. But if you're not effective, you can't keep doing what you're doing and expect to become effective. something's probably going to have to die. But Jesus died because he valued people and he loved them. And he notes a number of deaths that have to take place here. One is to self-preservation, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as helpless sheep in the midst of dangerous wolves, to paraphrase. Therefore be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now they needed to exercise wisdom and be harmless, but... He was very transparent about the potential cost of being on mission with him. And so the person uh, who wants to fulfill Jesus' mission will find it nearly impossible to do so if they make safety a higher priority. Then there's social approval, 17 through 22. This is heartbreaking. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. So be, be aware of unconverted religious people. Jesus is always warning about that in the Gospel of Matthew. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to the Gentiles. So you need to be aware of government, persecution. But when they deliver you up, the government, that is, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And then family. Now brother will deliver up brother to death. Can you imagine that? A brother delivering up another brother to death. And a father his child. 
And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. So family. And then it gets worse in verse 22. And you'll be hated by all. That's probably a rabbinic uh, hyperbole. They wouldn't hate each other, and Jesus wouldn't. But it's going to feel like some days everybody hates you for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end of the persecution will be rescued from it. You don't avoid, you don't relieve persecution by running from it, but going through it. And Jesus still expected them to be on mission with him. What we find in verses 17 to 22 is never an excuse from backing off the mission of Christ. Then, death to domestic stability. Look at verse 23. Well, we want a stable home. We can't go on mission for Christ wherever he sends us. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly or emphatically, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so they've got to uh, crucify domestic stability. Then, popular reputation, verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In other words, it doesn't get any easier for you than it did for me. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, thank God for that, and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house, Bill's above, the prince of demons, how much more will they call those of his household? A lot of name calling. Does any of this sound familiar? Is any of this relevant today? Yeah. A lot of name calling and being misunderstood. Whenever you, whenever you verbalize the gospel, you're taking the risk of being misunderstood. Look, I just got to tell you, I don't mean to be harsh, but the quota for Christian wimps has been filled. We don't need any more. Um, you're going to have to have the boldness and power of the Holy Spirit to be on mission for Jesus and to fulfill it as he defines it. So popular reputation's got to die. Fearful silence, verse 26 through 33, four times Jesus says fear not, essentially in this text, beginning in verse 26. Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. One day God will expose the opponents of the gospel. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What do you hear in the ear? Preach on the housetops. Go public, not clandestine, but public with the gospel. Now, there's some wise and strategic ways that you can do that. We do that around the world with some platforms, and they're excellent. But um, Jesus says, get in the light and on the housetops and declare. Then he says again, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hair of your heads are all numbered. That's easier for some than others. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than the sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who's in heaven. Does it get any better than that? Publicly, some people may not identify us. We may, we may embarrass them with our love for the Lord Jesus and sharing his word. But Jesus will stand before the Father and publicly identify with us. But verse 33, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is 
in heaven. So four times Jesus told them not to be paralyzed by fear into silence. They needed boldness. One day God would expose their opponents. And God is the one they should fear most. And God is the one who loves them the most. They are of more value than the sparrows. Then there is family unity, verse 34 through 39. Now they, they must have been stunned at these words and shook. And what you have to understand is that Jesus really means it when he says to evangelize the world. He means it. Do not think, verse 34, do, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man. I have come to purposefully intervene to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. When I surrendered to ministry, I created a lot of consternation in my family. And it was difficult. It was tough. It took the intervention of my grandparents to change some attitudes. And um, a um, pretty intense confrontation one day that I didn't learn about till much later. That's why it was such a great joy to marry into my wife's family, where we used the same language and there was significant church leadership in their lives. They were zealous for the Lord, very consistent, very faithful, giving kind of people. And I cannot tell you the deep, deep and abiding comfort I have that I can relate to that family, and so can my children. Jesus is welcomed. Jesus is welcomed there. They're not embarrassed. In fact, just the other day, Hannah Grace was with her grandfather, uh, Sherry Michelle's uh, father, and they went to the Lifeway store and picked up a commentary for a Haitian pastor. He was out $50 and he sent it to him. That's the kind of thing they do. What a marvelous, marvelous thing. It's not that way everywhere. And you don't want to be the kind of person who, or the kind of Christian, who with words and manner runs around poking your finger in their eyes. You know, Jesus said to love your enemies. See, he prefaced all of this with love your enemies. Okay. Um, I, I'm afraid I knew some folks in college that were zealous, but not with wisdom or knowledge. And they'd start talking to people about the word. And, of course, they were always real transparent, they claimed, and upfront with the gospel. They weren't going to be a bunch of hypocrites and hide how they felt. And they ended up offending a lot of people. We had some of that downtown Fort Worth, in fact. We had two different groups that did some street preaching. One was from one church in Venus, Texas. And boy, that fella get out there in front of the movie theater and holler at everybody and call them names from the King James Version of the Bible. Now, I like the King James, but their language has changed. Oh, my soul. And I, I thought, have you never read Proverbs 15? We had another group that was a lot nicer, and the law enforcement let them use amplification on a corner there. And uh, they, they weren't loud, but it was just enough to hear maybe in a 30, 40-foot radius there at the corner of Houston and Throckmorton. 
And uh, they would begin to share the gospel, and they won people to the Lord. And they were kind, and they were sweet. And they would give gospel tracts and start asking questions, and if the person would stop, they'd share with them. If they kept going on, they'd move on to the next person. Street preaching. Hey, it's one of the funnest things in the world to do. There's a good strategy to use to do it. One day we may do it. You may show up one Wednesday night. <clears throat> oh, it's marvelous. Marvelous. Uh, if we do that, I'll have people prepared, and we'll let most of you watch and observe, okay? But it, it's a marvelous thing. Marvelous thing. Um, but the, the other group uh, was, was pretty rough, and they justified it by saying they were committed and zealous for the Lord. You know, there's a way to communicate God's word that's like Jesus, and there's a way of just being a Christian jerk. And, and that quote is filled up, too. We don't need any more of those. All right? Um, so uh, Jesus said, you, family unity cannot be your number one priority. Now, that's got to be important. It might be number two, but it can't be more important than Jesus. And he's pretty direct and harsh about this. Then there's the companion of missions. That's Jesus, of course, as we discussed earlier. Jesus is the companion of those who are on mission. He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I have always struggled with understanding these verses until I looked at them again for this evening. And I've never discussed or preached these verses. Uh, but I would divide them into two sections. There's the reception of the companion Jesus and then rewards of the companion Jesus. Verse 40 is the reception. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives uh, me receives him who sent me. Now, uh, there, there are a couple of ways to understand this, and I, after reflecting on it, I think the second way is the way to understand this. Um, one, the first way, is if, the lost, if lost people have a positive disposition towards the Christian, they receive him, then the lost person will likely have a positive disposition towards Christ and his Father. You know, I've oftentimes found that true. If I can find lost people that like me or like people in my church, that's a springboard into the gospel, and you make progress with them. Okay? Um, and, but I'm not sure that's what it's saying. The second approach to this verse I've listed here or have um, elaborated on here too, if someone takes the risk to provide for persecuted witnessing disciples, which is the context of the passage, Jesus takes this risky hospitality as reception of him. That's how he views it. It's as if you have received me. Now, they're persecuted here. They've obviously been thrown out the house. They can't come back home because of verses 34 through 39. And Jesus says, all right, you've been thrown out of the house. You're being hounded by the government. You're being chased. Synagogues won't let you in. If someone takes the risk of receiving you, they've received me. And he continues with the rewards of such people. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet by the authority of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the, in the name of a righteous man or by his authority shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly or emphatically, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Jesus harkens back to verses 11 through 15 about the hospitality. You find someone who will receive you, stay there. Don't travel from place to place and look for better accommodations. Stay there. If they don't, move on. But if they do, stay there. 
So he hearkens back to that and promises rewards to those who harbor persecuted witnessing disciples. In the context, Jesus imagines the disciples need harbor and hospitality when persecuted. And three times here he promises a reward, a reward to the one who receives a prophet, which would be a rather small group. There weren't many prophets. Then to those who receive righteous people. Well, that's a larger group. And then the larger group happens to be the little ones. Now, little not in size and age, but little ones in status, the little people in the kingdom of God. If they are persecuted and hounded throughout the empire and you take the risk of receiving them, it's as if you've received me and in an emphatic way, three times over, I say to you, Jesus says, they will receive a reward. There is no one as generous as Jesus, even if it's giving a cup of cold water. Now, that is a key to understanding Matthew 25, which is almost always misapplied. It's usually used for a feeding program of the world. Matthew 25, and as much as you've done it to these, the least of my brethren. We'll learn in Matthew 12:50 that those happen to be those who do the will of God. It's not the world. It's those who are on mission for Jesus. They're doing the will of God. And as much as you take care of these when they're sick and in prison, hounded, persecuted, been locked up for preaching the gospel, and as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Whenever we are kind and generous in mission support, in hospitality to those who serve the Lord, when we stand by them and won't back down, Jesus says, it's like you've done it unto me. That's the whole subject of Matthew 25. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have feeding programs or shouldn't try to do social ministry to the world. Not saying that at all, but that's just not the meaning of that passage. And we'll look at that later in Matthew chapter 25. So what we're looking at here is that we're looking at a Savior who is emphatically generous to those who do in support missions. You get your heart wrapped around the mission of God, and I guarantee you, Jesus is going to get his heart wrapped around you. That's what he does. Reminds me of the Scottish reformer, John Welch, who was locked up in prison because he preached the gospel in uh, the days when such things weren't allowed in Scotland. And his wife went to the king and begged him, and he wouldn't receive her, but begged for the freedom of her husband. John Welch's health broke in prison, and she was real urgent about getting him out. One day the king was out in the uh, community, and she ran to him and collapsed at his feet and with tears begged him to let John Welch go. And the king said, I will, if he will promise never to preach as he's been preaching. And she said, sir, I would rather have his head on a platter than to silence the man. I don't know why, but the king was very impressed with that and let John Welch go and sprang him from prison. He was moved by the devotion and the commitment. Mary Welch embodied the values of this passage. My goodness. Can you imagine what her reception and her husband's reception was like in the kingdom of heaven? Can you imagine that? Let's make our reception that way. How you enter the kingdom, whether it's generous or by the skin of your teeth, is up to you.
Get on mission with Christ, and you're going to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd make it so. Lord, I want to say also, um, I'm quite impressed that you are very transparent here. You're, you're very real about some of the difficulties we could face in the uh, Athens region, uh, in uh, Indian Town, Florida, and somewhere around the world. And um, I do want to thank you, Lord, that, and, and this may sound odd to, to some, God, but personally, I'm really grateful that I came to Jesus where I did. And I thank you that some of these things were very real for me in the beginning days. It sure made me appreciate you. And I thank you that early on, I learned that Jesus is worthy of all. God, I remember those days singing that song, My Cross I'll Carry Till I See Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And I thank you that early in my life and since then, I've always had churches that were very supportive and a family that has been. I do want to pray that you would multiply those gifts among our people tonight. And I do pray that without becoming a bunch of jerks, without any abrasiveness, without any defensiveness, I want to pray that you'd fill us mightily with the Spirit and help us fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ because he is worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.